It's very nice to be able to preach to a group of people here in a place like this, rather than just preaching at a video camera. I've almost forgotten what it feels like. And so I really want to thank our host, Wycliffe College, for making this possible. The folks at Wycliffe have been just wonderful in helping us make this transition. And we're really appreciative of that. If you are a fan of Star Wars, you have most likely watched all nine movies in the series. Hugely popular. I'm told that the nine movies in the series grossed about nine billion US dollars worldwide. That's quite an achievement. And of course, with such popularity, the Star Wars series has spawned many spin-offs. And the latest is The Mandalorian, which I'm told is a TV series uh, in the Star Wars franchise uh, with that popular character, Baby Yoda. I haven't watched it yet, but I understand that's doing very well for Disney Plus as well. Well, that's a long way of explaining to you why we're doing a series on Exiles over these three weeks. It's hard to believe, but our Hebrew series started in September 2019. And we just finished the last in the series last week. And like the Star Wars franchise, it has been hugely popular. Well, okay, maybe not that popular. But I was thinking about the sermon series for this summer. I thought I could do a spin-off too from this Hebrew series. And it was the verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that caught my attention. Hebrews 11, 13 reads, and I'll read for you. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So I thought a spin-off on what it means to be strangers and exiles on earth might be helpful for us today. Exiles, as the dictionary would define it, is the state of voluntary or forced absence from one's country or home. And accompanying that is often the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, yet for the present, one is unable to return there. But exile can often imply more than just simply a geographical dislocation. As one author puts it, it can include the experience of knowing that one is an alien in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Well, seen in this way, the idea of exile can particularly be pertinent in our context here in Canada today. In recent times, we certainly can feel that as Christians, we are exiles in our own culture here. The church has moved from the center of the Canadian society to its margins. It was not so long ago that many Canadians would have thought of Canada as a Christian nation. Indeed, someone remarked that about 50 years ago in 1967, when Canada was celebrating its centennial birthday in Ottawa. The festivities began with a prayer service, which was carried live on national television. 
And when a guest of honor, Queen Elizabeth, arrived, she and the other dignitaries were greeted by eight members of the clergy who escorted them to their seats. The service included the passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 14, which was read by the then Prime Minister, Lester Pearson himself. Christian hymns were sung and prayers, which included a prayer of confession for the sins of the nation were made. And the Lord's Prayer was recited. In fact, a litany was used where those present were invited to respond with the words, we rededicate ourselves, O Lord. While compared at service with the memorial service that took place in Ottawa three days after September 11, on, when we had the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York, and that was just 20 years ago, someone recounted of that day that representatives from several religions were seated on the stage that day, but none invited to participate in the memorial service in any way. There were brief speeches by the Prime Minister, the American Ambassador, and the Governor General, but no scripture was read, no prayers offered, and no hymns sung. So we see in just one generation, the Christian faith no longer plays the major role it used to here in Canada. And the dominant values of this nation are increasingly no longer shaped by the Christian faith. And this is not just a phenomenon that's happening here in Canada. It is happening also in the US and in Europe. Christians who are living through this change can increasingly be feeling they are exiles in this culture with their values becoming more and more out of sync with that of their environment. Well, in a sense, that shouldn't surprise us. Because the idea of being in a state of exile can be seen throughout the Bible. You see, right from the start in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were exiled, expelled from the Garden of Eden, and they lived as aliens in a land outside the Garden of Eden. Abraham, of course, was very conscious of the fact that he was just a sojourner in the Promised Land in Canaan. Jacob went to exile when he had to escape from his brother Esau after he cheated him of his birthrights. And later, Jacob and his whole family would be in exile in Egypt when there was a famine in Canaan. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus himself was in exile when his parents took him to Egypt to escape King Herod's massacre of the baby boys. And the apostle Peter would write to his church in places like Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, addressing them as the elect exiles of the dispersion in 1 Peter. Paul would remind the Christians in Philippi that their citizenship is in heaven. And so this world, as it is, is not our home. We are meant to long to be finally back in our home in heaven. And until then, we can expect to be living in a culture where the dominant values will run counter to that of the Christian faith. And so the question for us as God's people is not so much whether we are in exile. In a sense, we've always been. Rather, the question should be, as exiles in the land we are in, how should we then live? And so over these three weeks, my hope is to preach from three passages 
two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, speaking about people who understood that they were exiles in their land. And these sermons are obviously not intended to answer all the questions that we may have about how we should engage our culture. My aim is a lot less lofty than that. I simply want to provide three occasions where the people of God have been faced with challenges of what it means to live as exiles and by the way that have lived through their times, hopefully provide us with examples to help us think about how we might live as exiles in our own circumstances. I've given these three sermons the title, uh, Define the System for this Sunday, Working the System for next Sunday, and Subverting the System for the following Sunday. And the word system here is intended to refer to the political institution, well, at least it was uh, in the case of these three stories that we'll be touching on. But I suppose it could also be an embracing term uh, for culture, for economic institution, and so on. And this week, our story takes us to the land of Babylon, sometime around 600 BC, during King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. It is taken from the book of Daniel, but our focus is not on Daniel himself. Instead, it is on his three friends, Sadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And during King Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Judah, they were captured, Daniel and his three friends, and sent into exile into the capital city of Babylon. Now, how did these three Jewish men live out their faith in such a context? And might there be something that we here in 21st century Toronto learn from them? I think so. And my hope is that by the end of this sermon, we have some ideas about how that might be and what that might be. Chapter 3 of Daniel is a well-known story. I'm sure most of you have heard of it before. It starts off with King Nebuchadnezzar making an image of gold. We're not told, but it is likely that the image is that of a Babylonian god, the principal god, uh, Madok. We can't be sure. But what we do know is that it was humongous, 90 feet tall, with a base of about nine feet. That, incidentally, is about nine stories high. And so the fact that it was built and set up on a plane, the plane of Dura, meant that it could be seen from a long distance away. I think that was the intention. We're not told why the king might want to build such a statue. We can speculate. But what we know is that everyone on the who's who list in the Babylonian empire had to come for the dedication of this statue. And we are told in verse three that this included the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the, the uh, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. Their loyalty to the king was to be demonstrated by bowing before the statue. And at the sound of the musical instruments like the horn, pipe, harp, and so on, they were to bow down and worship the golden image. And not to do so, Man death in a burning, fiery furnace. Well, apparently, Daniel's three friends, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, decided that they would not bow down and worship the statue. They chose not to obey the king. It was just a quiet and simple act of civil disobedience. But I guess it can be difficult to spot three people still standing while everyone else was on their knees. And so we are told some Cadians, most likely astrologers, who were 
probably jealous of uh, Daniel and his three friends because these foreigners, right? These foreigners, these Jewish people were promoted ahead of them in chapter two. And so these Cadians maliciously accused the three before the king. And the phrase maliciously accused in Hebrew literally meant ate the pieces off, a phrase suggesting severe hatred and bitter language. Uh, in today's language, probably would be equivalent to saying they chewed them out, they denounced them. And they said to the king, this man, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And this, of course, had the intended effect of making the king furious. But King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear from the three men. Is it true, he asked them, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Well, essentially, he was giving them a chance. If they were ready to bow down and worship the image, all well and good. But if not, they'd be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And then he asked, the king asked in verse 15, the most important question in this story, should they refuse to obey? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And the word hand here is often used as a metaphor for power in the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar, by asking that question, believed that he was controlling events. He has clearly forgotten that just one chapter ago, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 37, Daniel had told him, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. So it is God who's given him that power. What the king has clearly forgotten. While these three men clearly intend to remind him, and this is how Sadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied in verse uh, 16. And it is worth quoting in full. Let me read for you. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This was no defense. It wasn't even an attempt at defense. And there was no apology given. The three men's minds were clearly made up and they were not going to change them. They have chosen to defy the king. Well, for brevity, I've entitled it, I call it I call this Cedric's choice. That was their choice. And obviously, the most powerful man on earth at that time was not expecting that answer. Nobody speaks to the king that way. This would be the moment, if this were a movie, that they say that you could hear a pin drop. But not for long. Because if he was furious earlier on, King Nebuchadnezzar would now be very, very, very furious. So much so that we're told that the expression on his face changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. 
And that's basically an expression to say he wanted maximum heat in the furnace. And then he ordered the best man in his army to bind Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the burning fiery furnace. Now, these furnaces would have had an opening at the top and at the side. And in fact, they were often built on the side of a small hill. And so the soldiers could walk to the top and throw the men uh, into it, the three men. And the king would be able to look through the opening on the side and observe the three men die in the flame. Well, that was a plan anyway. And so urgent was the king's command that the three men didn't even get a change out of their clothes. They were literally grabbed and tossed immediately into the fire because we are told that they were thrown in with, in their clothes, their tunics, their hats, and the other garments that they were wearing. And so hot was the furnace that the man who threw them in ended up being killed by the flames. So the plan didn't go exactly as planned. And in fact, as the king watched, he saw a sight that he never expected. And for a while, he must have thought that his eyes were playing a trick on him. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? He asked. His people said, yes. Then why am I seeing the three men still alive and walking in the fire? And now there is a fourth man, and he looks like a son of the gods, the king said. There have been many speculations about who the fourth man might be. Oh, the king obviously thought it was some divine being. It could have been an angel sent by the Lord uh, to protect the three men. Or possibly, as many believe, uh, what we have here is the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Just like the time when he appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or when he wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. God was in the fire with Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was present with them, protecting them. And so the king called out to the three of them, and it was clear, clear to him that the three men had been miraculously saved. The fire did not kill them. It did not even touch them. And so the same people, the satrap, the governors, and so on, were worshipping the golden image not so long ago, now witnessed the power of the true God, the one true God, the God of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this led the king Nebuchadnezzar to issue a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The king has answered the very question that he asked in verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And the answer, the God of Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the three, king were told were uh, the three men were promoted by the king. And our story has a happy ending. Now, what might be some of the lessons that we can learn from this story? Let me suggest three. Firstly, recall that Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought into Babylon and trained in the wisdom of Babylon. Their education would have been very different from what they would have expected growing up in the Jewish culture. In fact, it was intended to alienate them from their own culture. Their Hebrew names were changed to the names of pagan gods, 
They were exposed to new foods, new customs, and so on. And as much as possible, they were being systematically indoctrinated against the Jewish heritage. The intent was to make them less Jewish and more Babylonian. And they did well under the circumstances. The three men rose to high positions in the king's court. And these three men integrated very well in the Babylonian society. Well, in a sense, they demonstrated for us that dual loyalties were possible. They can serve God and they can serve their Babylonian king. But they were also very clear that should there ever be a conflict between how they are to serve God and the king, they would obey God, period. They would not compromise their ultimate commitment of faithfulness to God. And that is a conscious, determined, and established pattern of life from young. Because we see that in chapter one, don't we? That even as youths, they chose not to defile themselves by eating the king's food. Instead, they chose a different diet to remind themselves that they were a different people from the Babylonian people. They were exiles in a foreign land, and they remembered that. And so when the king asked them, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? They didn't say, oh, you know what, oh king, can you give us about a day to think about this? And we'll come back to you with an answer. These three men didn't hesitate. They were already very clear in their minds where their allegiance lay and who they would only worship. This was a settled matter in their minds. Well, the point here is that often how we respond during these pivotal moments in our lives do not come out of nowhere. It's not as if in our hearts and in our minds there's a menu of options that we pull out and then decide, hmm, in this situation, which response should I go for? Because for many of such pivotal moments, to start off with, we don't expect them, much less prepare for them. Our response is, in such times is often instinctive. Why? Because it is the result of the cumulative effects of our life choices and training over the years. Well, if you're into baseball, one of the big questions in baseball has to do with how certain batters do when the outcome of the game is on the line. And a batter's success could mean the difference between whether the team is going to win or lose. And there's a term for it. It's called clutch hitting. Clutch hitting. A clutch hitter is someone who seems to bet much better when a game depends on it than when under normal circumstances. They kind of rise to the occasion. But you know what? Many studies have been done on this, and the evidence is conclusive. How a better bets under the pressure of a critical moment of a game is exactly how he bets at other times. There may be a season or two when a better is more productive in a clutch, but the statistics over his lifetime always averages out. A better is a better, it's a better. What he does under stress is what he does every other day. If it's terrific on those ordinary days, he'll be terrific under pressure. If it's not very good day to day, he won't be any good when the game is on the line. 
And such was the case with Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The clarity and the courage in their response to King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't something that came overnight. It was the result of a lifetime of covenant purity and faithfulness to their God. And so our first lesson is this. Christians can be integrated in society, serve pagan masters, and still obey God. But it helps when we have been living a consistent pattern of faithfulness to God. Let me repeat that. Christian, Christians can be integrated in society, serve pagan masters, and still obey God. But it helps when we have been living a consistent pattern of faithfulness to God. Which brings me to my second and somewhat related point. As I said a moment ago, it is hard to prepare for many of these situations that Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through. And often we, we don't even expect them. But having said that, it was clear that this issue of who they would worship would be a hill that they were prepared to die on. They were prepared for that. It was a conviction that they had held, and it helped them respond the way they did. And so the question is, what might some of the convictions that we need to be clear about in our lives be? So that when we are put in situations that we never expected, and our convictions tested, we have already thought through them, and we know in our minds what our stance would be. As someone puts it, these are the essential truths that we need to kneel down before all hell breaks loose. Have you worked out what are the non-negotiable convictions in your life? The so-called hills that you are prepared uh, to die on? When life throws the unexpected challenges and tragedies in your life? Because if you haven't thought about it, today is a good time to start nailing them down. Because I can assure you, if you're not clear about them, when a crunch comes, you'll be more likely to compromise. Ultimately, our story in Daniel 3 is not just about deliverance. In fact, it is more about worship. For the three men, what the king asked them to do went against the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing was more important than worshipping the one true God. They had refused to even consider eating food, possibly offered to idols. And so they were clear that they were not now bowing down to one. For them to compromise on this first commandment was inconceivable. They would rather die than worship another god or idol. And what about us today? How is our culture tempting us to compromise? For all of us, whether at school, at home, at work, expect that we will be constantly faced with situations where we'll be tempted to compromise. After all, we are often told Everyone else does it. As someone puts it, and I quote, the world has its own fiery furnace waiting for those who do not conform to the worship of its idols. It is the furnace of being sneered at, ridiculed, scorned, ostracized, and ignored. Clean living and God-fearing people are told that they are narrow-minded fuddy-duddies and are co-shouldered, being shut out of the lives and affections of those around them. To many believers, the pressure seems irresistible 
they feel forced into a choice. They must either give in and be like everybody else, or they must stand out and lose everything, end quote. I hope you are clear. What are the convictions that you are prepared to hold fast to? Even if it means defying the system, standing out and losing everything, including your lives. I've entitled this sermon, Defying the System, because that was exactly what Zedrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They defied their king. They defied the royal orders. Well, obviously, what this means is that we will need to choose carefully the convictions for which we are prepared to defy the system, because not every issue qualifies for our defiance. In fact, most don't. We want to be careful that we are not exaggerating every opposition to our faith and overreact by making them a cause for defiance. We want to be wise to recognize that often the laws that are put in, especially today, that seems to disadvantage our faith are simply the cultural privileges that we in North America have enjoyed previously but are now being removed. This might not be a best example, but one I could think of is, for instance, in time to come, we could lose our tax exam status. As I understand, there's some move uh, towards that in the Western world. But we should not be surprised at this. We should expect that such changes, we should expect them to come because as our society becomes more secular and the Christian faith is now moved to the margins, more and more of these things will happen. And we need to remember that churches also, churches in the first century, and many churches today in Asia or in the Middle East, never enjoyed tax exam status. But that never stopped the growth of the churches in these places. So we need to choose carefully the issues over which we are prepared to defy the system. There are other ways to address such situations, but defying the system is probably not the way to go. So our second lesson is this. Christians, Christians should be clear about their convictions and choose carefully over which convictions that they are, they'll be prepared to defy the system. Christians should be clear about their convictions and choose carefully over which convictions they will be prepared to defy the system. Thirdly, I want to look at how the three of them responded. With the threat of being cast into a burning fiery furnace, it would have been tempting to rationalize and convince themselves that it would be all right to bow down just this once. I mean, they could have thought, you know, you know, the Babylonians, they don't understand the laws of our God, and we don't want to offend their sensitivities. Uh, it would be hard to witness to them later on as well. So we could just bow down this once. Or perhaps they can rationalize by saying something like, you know, let us mount a silent protest. We will kneel on the outside, but we'll be standing and worshiping the true God on the inside in our hearts. But that's not what they did. The three men didn't rationalize this way. And it's worth once again to read their response in full. They said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Two quick points regarding the response. Firstly, they know the God whom they serve is able to deliver them from the burning furnace. Their God can deliver them out of the hands of the king. No ifs, no buts. They're certain of that. But secondly, they also know that God may choose not to deliver them. And they're prepared to accept the fact that God may choose not to intervene at all on their behalf. And so here are some questions for us. Is God sovereign and is he all-powerful? The answer, yes. Is God able to deliver believers from all problems and trials? Yes. But does God deliver all believers from all trials? No. We know from scripture and especially in our study of the book of Hebrews that God may allow trials to come into our lives to discipline us, to build our character, or for a host of other reasons. We may not fully understand. We're asked to simply trust him, even when it's not easy. But even as God does not promise that Christians will never suffer or experience challenging times, he does promise that he will always be with us. In fact, this was the case with Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God did not deliver them from the fire. He delivered them in the fire. He was in the fire with them. The author, Philip Yancey, tells the story of Brian Sternberg. Brian was a well-known athlete, held several records in pole vault competition. And during the 1963 season, when Brian was just 19 years old, he was undefeated in all the outdoor competition. And he set his first world record. And then on July the 2nd that year, everything changed. On that day, while working out on a trampoline, Brian landed on his neck and lost all feeling and movement in his arms and legs. Brian Sternberg was a Christian and his faith was put to the test. He faced a crisis that threatened to leave him paralyzed for the rest of his life, confined to a wheelchair. But Brian had faith in God. And less than a year after the incident, Brian was asked to write an article for a magazine. And he ended the article with these words. And I quote, Having faith is a necessary step towards one of two things. Being healed is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing does not come, is the other. Either will suffice. Our third lesson is this. Christians can trust that God is able to deliver them when they defy the system, but he may choose not to. Either way, we are to remain faithful. Christians can trust that God is able to deliver them when they defy the system, but he may choose not to. Either way, we are to remain faithful. Let me conclude. And thanks for bearing with my brief word of exhortation so far. I want to pause for a moment and ask the question, which character in this story do we identify ourselves with? 
for myself. I want to think of myself as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the ones whose faithfulness to God led them to defy the king. Well, it helps too that they were promoted in the end. I want to be identified with them. But if I'm to be honest, I'm probably more like the satraps, the, the governors, the officials of all the other provinces. You see, they had all had their own gods in their provinces, but they were prepared to bow down to the golden statue as well. Why? Because the cost of not doing so was too high, and so they compromised. And I've been there too. The cost of carrying the cross and following Jesus was too high, and I compromised. But worse, actually, if I were to be super honest, I'm afraid I'm actually more like the king. As someone once said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And I've set up idols in my life for myself and often for others to worship. Idols of intellect, influence, competence, and so on. Because I desire the affirmation of people around me. It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel I have worth. And so this story has been a good reminder for me that if I'm not careful, I can be very much like all the other characters in the story, either compromising or setting up idols for worship. So finally, let me circle back to the question I asked at the start of this sermon. How do we live as exiles in a land where the dominant values run counter to that of our Christian faith? And the answer is this. Well, most of the time, peacefully serving our pagan masters, but always remaining faithful to God. And that will mean that sometimes we can expect to have to defy the system, especially when we're required to bow down and worship other gods. And I hope that we're all ready when the time comes. But we want to be wise as well. Defying the system obviously isn't the only way to engage our culture. There are other ways, and so we need to choose carefully. But even more importantly, we need to first check our hearts to make sure that we're not setting up idols ourselves for others to worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.